John chapter 13. We'll also be looking at Psalm 49 and Psalm 55, I believe it is this morning. Again, we know the scene. We have studied this through. The feast of the Passover, Jesus with his disciples, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, and then Jesus proceeding to teach them and to explain to them what he has done, what he is doing, and as we'll see this morning as he teaches them what is to come. Join me with looking at verse 5, chapter 13 of John's Gospel. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who was sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And then the scriptures for us this morning. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled, that he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Then Jesus, when Jesus had said said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Again, we see and we've learned that Jesus was clothed with humility And that he says that his disciples, those who follow him, are completely clean. We see that Jesus had humility, and we are to have this honest humility. He was the extraordinary example that we look to. And then we'll have for us this morning four points to look at, four points to examine But few people know this, 
But both sets of Ernest Hemingway's grandparents were committed evangelical Christians. You may have heard of Ernest Hemingway. In fact, his paternal grandparents were both graduates of Wheaton College and very close friends of D.L. Moody. His maternal grandfather was such a godly patriarchal figure that his grandchildren called him Abba. Furthermore, one of Hemingway's uncles was a missionary to China. Yet Ernest Hemingway, after leaving his evangelical rearing in Oak Park, Illinois, became the worldwide emblem of the lost generation who said, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there is no current to plug into and who took his own life. Title of my message this morning as we consider this Mr. Hemingway, we consider Judas. The title of my message this morning is Believing or Betraying. Believing or Betraying. Once again, I will ask for the Lord's help. God, as I open up your word this morning, I seek to be faithful to you. I seek to please you, not to please man. I seek not to tickle tickle any ears, but to be faithful to your word for the glory of Jesus Christ. Please help me. I am nothing without you. In Christ's name, amen. Jesus first gives a prophetic pronouncement, a prophetic pronouncement when he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. There are ones who he has chosen. And he says, I know them. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. First, he reminds the disciples that he has said to them thus far during the supper, what he has said to them does not apply to all of them. He says, you are clean but not all of you. And verse 21, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Twelve disciples, Jesus is speaking when he says, I have chosen you specifically, and that one of you will betray me. So indeed, eleven are true. Jesus even said after the feeding of the multitudes in John chapter 6, we remember going through this not too long ago. Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 6, after the feeding of the multitudes, he said, There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, the one of the twelve, who was going to betray him. 
So Jesus was obviously not surprised. He also makes it clear to the disciples that one of them is false. One of them is a traitor. One of them would be a turncoat. Judas, as we see in chapter 12, verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him. So Judas already had this in his mind. He was already set on doing this. He was going to betray Jesus. It was just a matter of time. But the disciples, the eleven, are found to be perplexed when they hear from Jesus that one of them was a traitor. It is not noted anywhere, here nor elsewhere, that the disciples had any idea to suspect Judas. Indeed, Judas was a deceiver, a hypocrite par excellence, as James Boyce says. His mask never fell off until the very end. When Jesus says, I know the ones I have chosen. Excuse me. First, this speaks of the divine initiative. Christ chose them. Christ elected them. But not Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition. He chose them, 11 of them, for salvation. They were called by God for salvation. They were the ones who would um, benefit and who would inherit the kingdom of heaven. They were ones who Romans chapter 8 verse 28, or excuse me, 29 is speaking about. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These who he justified, he also glorified. Judas is not included in this choosing. He would instead betray Jesus Christ. Now indeed, Judas was chosen for a purpose. And we see this in John 6. I'll just reference it for you. Uh, Verse 70. I read it already. Jesus answered and said to them, I did I myself not choose you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Yes, he chose them to be his disciples. And out of those disciples, he knew that one of them would be a devil. But that does not mean that Judas was chosen for salvation. Jesus points that out here. And we ask, why was Judas not chosen? Well, one reason, which is an important reason, that is before our eyes this morning, is, would, is, is that Scripture may be fulfilled. So that Scripture may be fulfilled. This pro Prophetic pronouncement. We see this elsewhere as well. We see Jesus saying the similar thing in his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17 and verse 12. As he is praying to the Father, he says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Why? So that the scripture would be fulfilled. We see Jesus saying similar things. I'll just reference these. I won't go there. 
in John chapter 15, verse 25, John chapter 19, verse 24, and 20, and 36, rather. So when the scripture is to be fulfilled, what scripture is Jesus speaking of here when he says, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me? Well, it makes sense if we were to go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, but more uh, as he quotes it specifically, we go to Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9. Psalm chapter 41 in verse 9, when Jesus says, this is uh, so that the scripture may be fulfilled, and then he quotes the scripture. We need to know where it came from and what was going on, the context and why. And then we'll look at Psalm 55 briefly to see furthermore this betrayal. We remember that oftentimes Jesus appeals to scripture to seal the point, to hit people over the head with the truth, to make them understand the truth. Paul frequently does this as well. The same with Peter, quoting the Old Testament to say, here, this is to fulfill what the scripture said. Psalm 41 is a psalm attributed to David. David is crying out to God for help and for deliverance. The setting seems to be the rebellion of David's son, Absalom. The circumstances were so dire that David fled Jerusalem. And more salt was poured into the wound when it was discovered that there is also a trusted friend, a counselor of David, that was close to him, that betrayed him, and was advising Absalom against David. Ahithophel was David's counselor, 2 Samuel 15, and became a betrayer. David even prayed and asked the Lord to make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. He asked the Lord that that his counsel would be foolishness to Absalom. The verse in focus for us is verse 9. Chapter Psalm 41, rather, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It was unthinkable in this cultural context to turn against and to attack a person that had been welcomed at their dinner table. Eating of bread together portrays close fellowship. To turn against them after that close fellowship was to commit a breach of hospitality. This relationship further described in Psalm 55. I invite you to turn there just so we can get more emphasis on on this. This type of close relationship that Jesus referenced in this betrayal that took place. Psalm 55 verse 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, which we would expect enemies to be against us. Then I could bear it, he said, and we could bear it as well. It would be understandable if an enemy was against us. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together 
walked in the house of God in the throng. That is the description of the close, intimate friendship. And then there is the statement to lift up the heel. To lift up the heel. The metaphor of kicking the heel or tripping with the heel. Some commentators understand this as a horse's hoof, as he would prepare to kick violently. Have you ever seen a horse kick something or someone? It is very violent. Tremendous damage can come from being kicked by a horse. Eating another's bread as if they were sitting around the table and when someone were to take bread from their, from their own plate and give it to someone else was a, a sign of honor, was a sign, a good thing to do. Today we may say, well, I don't want to touch that. I'll take my own food. But here, this was a kind thing to do. Eating another's bread, but then to lift up the heel against them. Eating one's bread and then kicking him in the face right afterwards. That was Judas Iscariot. That's who he was. Eating bread from the Lord Jesus Christ and then, as it were, kicking him. David, who was betrayed by Ahithophel, Ahithophel, who later strangled himself. He hung himself. An interesting parallel to Judas, who hanged himself after betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus poured his life into these men for three years of ministry, three years of close friendship, three years of teaching them, day after day. And none of the disciples suspected Judas Yet he was a two-faced hypocrite, a fraud. We will see more about Judas today in another verse and, Lord willing, next time as well. So there was this prophetic pronouncement. Why is Judas doing this? Well, for one reason, to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said. So secondly, we have the preventative preparation. Preventative preparation. You know, sometimes if you go to the dentist or go to the doctor, they talk about preventative maintenance. Or even maybe if you get something, uh, you go to uh, the, the car to get your car, cha- something changed with the car, the oil change or whatever. And they say, well, this is preventative maintenance. Or this is preventative care. You do this now and you won't have this later. Or this is to prepare you for what is later. And that's that's fine. But here we have this preventative preparation. He is saying, I am now I am telling you this before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, because it will occur, you may believe and keep on believing, present tense, that I am He. Jesus tells them what is going to happen before it happens. Here he is, sitting at the table with them. Judas, there as well. He already told them, not all of you are clean. I do not speak of all of you. He is preparing them for what he will tell them in verse 21. 
They were not to be caught off guard when what Jesus predicted happens. And when we look at this, we consider this, we see Jesus' tender concern for the disciples. This tender concern the chief shepherd has for his sheep. The care he shows to the well-being of those whom he has chosen. Those who he has set his love upon. If the betrayer took them by complete surprise, without Jesus telling them, without Jesus warning them, this is how it's going to happen, someone will betray you, imagine what would take place in their lives. Imagine how their world would be turned upside down and their faith shattered if they were not given this preventative preparation. Jesus is concerned with their spiritual welfare. William Hendrickson points out thus, He, Jesus, knows that the treachery of Judas will have a tendency to upset the disciples and to undermine their faith. They might even begin to think of their master as having become the victim of the plotting of that very shrewd fellow Judas. So with Jesus explaining these things to them, the tone is being set. He is telling them what will happen, what will take take place. And this is for their benefit. He also told them about his upcoming suffering and death. Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Let's just turn there briefly. I'll read it for us. Matthew 16, verse 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And we know we're familiar with Peter's response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, we see that he is already warning them. And just a side note, we shouldn't say that to our spouses or our family or friends, you know, get behind me, Satan. Um, you know, sometimes we may jest in, in that regard, but uh, Jesus was saying this for a reason, and there was emphasis here, and this was a serious statement. But Jesus would pray alone in Gethsemane while they slept. He would stand alone on Gabbatha, the, the pavement before Pilate, because they fled. He would also hang on the cross alone at Golgotha, delivered over by the hands of men as he was there alone. So they should not be surprised. Their faith should not be shattered 
when Judas betrays him with a kiss. Because Jesus told him, told them this would indeed take place. And Jesus tells us what to expect in this life as well. If you are fading out, pay attention this morning. So that we are not shocked. Expect Judas's in your life. Expect Judas's in the church. Expect Judas's even in your own family. Expect Judas's in pulpits, in the pews, in the Christian colleges, in the seminaries. Jesus warns us, did he not? Matthew 7, 15, I'll just read this for you. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They don't come at us like dressed as wolves, ferocious. Usually when they come in this way as Jesus is speaking, no, they look like sheep. They smell like sheep, but they are ravenous wolves. And then Jesus also says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. If there is ever a time to be discerning, brothers and sisters, it is now. If there's ever a time to be serious about the Word of God, it is now. If there's ever a time to be serious about praying for protection of the leaders in the church, it is now. When persecution and adversity increases, whether it be in the time of the apostles or the early church or today, false prophets deceive and wickedness continues to grow. And some who profess to follow Christ will abandon him. The word of God also says in Matthew 24, Many will fall away, says the Lord, and will betray one another, and will hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. You say, I want to watch the news today. Not the secular news, but the uh, news of religions. This verse, we could say, wow, this is right there. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures until the end, he is the one who will be saved. So we see this preventative preparation that Jesus gives to the disciples, and as he tells us what to look out for as well. And then we find this reverent reception, this reverent reception when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And here we have him saying this once again. Truly, truly, I say to you. He who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Second time we find Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, at this supper, there is an emphatic, important statement about to be said. Notice the word receive here is four times in one sentence. 
If we see a word four times in one sentence, that should tell us that word is extremely important. To receive the messenger is to receive the sender. To receive the sender, which is, the sender, which is Christ, is also to receive God the Father. This verse is a verse of encouragement to the disciples. And an encouragement for us as well. Jesus, he washed his disciples' feet, then went on to explain to them to follow his example, and he began to tell them that a traitor was in their midst. Perhaps at this time they were discouraged. No doubt they were shocked. Understandably so. Here, the the Son of Man, Jesus our Lord, just washed our feet, Here he is explaining things to us, and he says, one of you will betray me. Jesus told them that he chose them, and those who received their message, received them as representatives of Jesus Christ, would be as if they received Jesus and therefore received God. In other words... When they preached the message, pleading with sinners to be reconciled to God on behalf of Christ, to repent of their sins and to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. They who respond with receiving such a message would respond as receiving Jesus Christ. God is the one who makes the appeal to a sinner through the preaching of the Word of God. To receive the messenger and his message of Christ, ultimately is to receive Christ, to reject an appeal to embrace Jesus Christ, is obviously to reject Jesus Christ. Only two options, right? Only two options with Christ. Receive Him or reject Him. Receive Christ or reject Christ. There is no middle ground. True disciples, true followers of Christ, preach the true message of Christ. The word receive brings to mind another passage. I'll read it for you. In John John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But, verse 12, as many as received Him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So that verse here gives us, uh, helps us in our understanding of what receive means. To receive is to take to one's side, to welcome. Whoever receives Christ receives the tremendous promises and privileges of being a child of God. This promise This privilege available to all who call upon the name of the Lord. The question is, what does it mean to receive Christ? Surely it involves more than inviting Jesus into one's heart or or praying a sinner's prayer or raising one's hand. The last part of John chapter 1 verse 12 helps us. Those who receive him are those who believe in his name. To believe in Christ is to believe what Jesus said. It is more than an intellectual understanding. 
It is to trust and rely on him by faith. And to take action because of that trust. It is to fully believe on him. And to stake or to trust one's eternal life in his hands. Washer said it well. To receive Christ is to trust or rely upon him to such a degree that we stake both our temporal and eternal well-being on the truthfulness of his claims. And we direct the entire course of our lives according to his will. One must be willing to give up all autonomy and submit to Christ's lordship. We're studying the Beatitudes right now and Wednesday night just started. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense, there is. If my memory serves me correct, there's two of those in there that are present tense, is. The rest of them in there are future tense, shall. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who see their need for a Savior, who realize that nothing in their hand they can bring, is when we acknowledge our emptiness without Christ, that one is ripe to receive Christ. And it's not for the lost person only, it's for us as well as Christians. To be poor in spirit is to continue to recognize that we need Christ, that we need to be clothed with Him continually. That we are not to rely on ourselves, For thus, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we have this prophetic pronouncement from the Lord. We have this preventative preparation that he gives. Then we have the response, which must be a reverent reception. And then we have the breaching betrayal. The breaching betrayal. Betrayal. Verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Again, Jesus being troubled in spirit. This was not the first time we've seen this with our blessed Lord Christ, as he was agitated in spirit, shooken up in spirit, troubled in spirit, and it's not the last time. This shock and grief would be even worse in Gethsemane. The presence of the traitor in the room, at the table with Jesus, troubled his spirit. Jesus knew Judas was a traitor, and he knew that for a while now, but it was all coming to a head. Sinclair Ferguson says this, He, Judas, had been with Jesus for three years, heard him preach countless times, seen his miracles of compassion and power professed to be his disciple. He had even been appointed to the trusted post of treasurer. 
Yet he harbored a resentment against the Lord Jesus. It must have troubled the Savior's heart for some time. Now it had reached a point of inner distress. Close quote. We see that Jesus was troubled in spirit over one who professed to follow him, over one who was in his midst, but one that was going to turn his back on him. Jesus was concerned for his disciples. He loved his disciples. He's concerned for all of us. And he loves all of his people. So he forewarned them of what was coming with Judas. Just as he forewarns us in his word of what to expect of the Judases in this life. He loved his, his disciples. And once Judas left the room, as we will see, God willing, the atmosphere would change. As we read the preceding chapters in the Gospel of John, we know that Judas was going to betray Jesus. He was a devil. He was a thief. And he was ultimately hostile to the grace of God. Can you imagine that? Some of us can say that that used to describe me before I was a Christian, right? Hostile to the grace of God. Someone who was a Christian that was in your life that was very gracious to you and you wanted nothing to do with them. You gritted your teeth at them. If you could violently hurt them and get away with it, you might have well done so. But God changes our hearts, does he not? And we are not to assume that people will respond well to what is called seeing love in action. Judas sure did not. And he was there in the midst of Jesus Christ. Judas shrunk back from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw firsthand the ministry, kindness, and grace of Jesus and turned his wicked heart against him. There are very dangerous situations to be in this world. A lot of dangerous places to be in this world. You just have to turn on the news for an hour and say, wow, where can I go? Dangerous places, such as a bad neighborhood, perhaps, ruled by gangs. Dangerous places, such as a war zone on a foreign field. And we see that even in Places where people are supposed to be safe can be the most dangerous places for our physical well-being and spiritual well-being, really. But the most dangerous spot you could ever be in spiritually is to be one who sits under the Word of God, professes to follow Jesus Christ, and then deny Him. Hebrews 6 tells us of this. For the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. That is a tremendous 
warning for those who would sit under the sound of the preaching of the Word of God and have a hardened heart towards Him. But Jesus, as I mentioned, is, to, is sent to rescue lost sinners. And He is still rescuing lost sinners this day. Jesus explained to His disciples what was coming in their lives. What difficulties to expect from those who oppose Christ. Jesus explains and warns us as well to help us, to prepare us, because He loves us and He cares for us. He has told us so that when we see that trouble comes, we will continue to believe in Him. And when we're shattered, and when our world is rocked, that we continue to believe on Him. Because He says these things will happen in your life. But He holds us fast, does He not? Just as Jesus chose His disciples, if you're a Christian this morning, a child of God, He has chosen you as well. Nothing can change that. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor peril, nor sword. There's a testimony of a young preacher from Zimbabwe. He says, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power, he says. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back. I won't let up. I will not slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small plannings, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed vision, Worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right first. I don't have to be tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I know life by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience. I'm uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, led up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me, for my banner will be clear. Let us pray. Oh God, 
thank you for your continued kindness that you have shown us today. Thank you for teaching us your word, giving us greater understanding. Lord, as we know that there will be Judases in our life. We know that people betray us, turn against us, stab us in the back. Lord, you never leave us nor forsake us. You indeed hold us fast. You love your people. You died for your people. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this world. Fully God, fully man, the sinless Savior, willingly gave up his life, willingly went to the cross, bore the wrath of you, O God, that we deserved for sinners who would turn to him in repentance and faith, died on that cross, gave up his life and said, it is finished, and was buried and rose from the grave on the third day according to the scriptures. He ascended on high. And Lord Jesus, we await your return. In the meantime, O Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified in this place, in this church, and that many lost sinners would come to Christ, repenting of sin, placing their trust in Jesus. For the glory of the Lord, in his name we pray, amen.